As always, the Mike Sappho Podcast is sponsored by Silk City Hot Sauce. You know what Jeff's doing down there, making the best hot sauce in the game. We all see what Dave Portnoy is doing with Barstool. He's donating millions and millions of dollars to small businesses. Silk City Hot Sauce, everything he does is made locally. Grown in Vermont, there's seven flavors to choose from mild all the way up to super hot. We got Chipotle and Aztec Attack, that's the mild one. Mango Madness, my favorite. The Badass Jew and Slurp, they're the medium. Hot Experiment and Killer Hot, they're very hot. And if you're the extreme hot sauce guy, the Ghost Whisperer. Every flavor features original artwork designs drawn by professional comic book artists. You gotta check it out, they're the sickest bottles ever. Go to SilkCityHotSauce.com. Enter the coupon code SAFO, S-A-F-O, to save 15%. And you know when I talk about Silk City Hot Sauce, I always mention their extreme, unique flavor, cherry sriracha. It's the hot sauce that you put on ice cream. Well, I talk about it so much that if you go to SilkCityHotSauce.com, you put in SAFO, any purchase you make, Jeff's going to give you a free bottle of the cherry sriracha. It's off the hook. Trust me, support Jeff, support Silk City Hot Sauce, local business, small business, SilkCityHotSauce.com, the best hot sauce in the game, hands down. And now, Corporal Matthew Bradford. Corporal Bradford, what's going on, my friend? Good, how are you doing? Happy New Year. Happy New Year's to you. Hey, when is your cutoff for wishing people a Happy New Year's? It's such an easy response when, when people post stuff or that you see something, it's just like, oh, Happy New Year. <laughs> Any resolutions for Matthew Bradford? I don't. I, I, you know, I just... I try to wake up and live each day like it's my last. And, you know, each year I try to find new challenges, you know, more more advanced than last year that, you know, can not only challenge myself mentally but physically. And, I mean, it's pretty easy this year because everything was canceled last year. (laughs) Hey, uh, 2020, Matt, it has been a nightmare for millions of people. But for diehard Kentucky fans like you and I, it's been hell. Bro, what the F is going on with our basketball team? You know – it, it, it's tough to watch. Like I, I, I will openly admit that I've turned off. I think the last three games before the Mississippi State game, and um, even even the Louisville game, I was not like it was on, but I wasn't interested at all. So I was really good to see them play Saturday night, and and I was nervous when they went down nine in the second half. I thought the game was over, but you know they got on a run, and it, it helps out a lot when you got Dante Allen finally hitting three pointers of person that sit on the bench the whole year and i don't want to you know i love coach cal matt you know i i look at him like a father to me do you think changes need to happen either the way he's recruiting or i would never say get him out of lexington because i think he should be there forever i love him what do you think recruiting wise you think that eight mcdonald all americans might be too much and maybe let's keep two or three and have guys who maybe either are local like local kentucky boys who have such their blood bleeds blue or maybe get guys who are three-star recruits who might grow into the the player they need them to but have that veteran presence for a few years for us i will say i'm excited about you know with the dante allen what he can turn into be and then also lance Ware. but i mean if you look at look at teams like kansas i hate to you know compare them but they have two or three five stars every year but they got a lot of veteran players sprinkled in and every year they're competing for the title you know and it's in these players who don't stay or don't go after one year. I mean, they look back at the recruiting class and there's seven or eight, you know, one and done's coming in the next year. That's going to replace them. And, but it's just, I, I feel like that if you look at the Willie Colley Steins, the Terrence Jones, Deron Lambs, Dominic Hawkins, Darius Millers, it's like, 
these players have benefited and helped out so much with just, you know, maybe staying one year, maybe staying two years. But people talk about like, oh, you know, the the one and dones, they're the they're the leaders because they're the the stars. But, you know, we've lost a lot of games this year to experienced teams. I mean, if you look at like Richmond or teams that we should be beaten, but Richmond and Virginia, Richmond and Georgia Tech experienced players. I think that says a lot that we need that. Uh, the Kentucky Wildcats becoming a football school. <laughs> I, I love football. You know, I love that. You know, I'm a. I remember telling Coach Stoops it was after a basketball game in 2013. It was his first game, or his first basketball game. I guess I think we were playing Auburn at Rupp, and they brought me out on the court, and I gave him a big old hug, and I'm like, I'm 110 percent behind you, and <laughs> and ever since then he's been he's been good to me, and I've you know always invite me out to practice and speaking to the team, but I'm glad to see them doing well and um i mean just following a lot of the players returning i mean darian canard luke fortner i mean a lot of these a lot of these seniors who could have went pro are coming back for another year they're taking advantage of that eligibility rule and i love that it showed so much heart that they came back and listen they were four and six this year before the bowl game right and they came out they played their butts off in the bowl game they beat nc state that was a hell of a saturday kentucky fans had this week it was. It was. And I actually thought the basketball game started at four. So I'm like, oh, the football game's going in at three thirty, go right into the basketball game and wait until six o'clock. I was like, <laughs> oh, I was kinda of hitting the wall right when the game started. I think I actually like sat on the couch with my wife and took like a ten minute cat nap. <laughs> hey, uh, I I'm I'm excited because they do. they it's a blue collared football and you know, and if you look at it they they finished year five and six, but two of their losses were teams that they would not even played if it was a normal schedule. And if you throw in those four non-conference games, I mean, they should they would have finished nine and four. You know, that's a very optimistic Kentucky fan. <laughs> no, but but of course, and that's what we do. But you look at the SEC: Florida, Georgia, Alabama, A and M, Auburn. These are the powerhouses of all of college football. And it's funny that Kentucky competes with them now. Remember, Matt, remember five, six years ago, maybe Kentucky would be 30, 40, 50 point underdogs against these teams, and now at least they're competing. Man, I'm loving it. Yeah, I mean, what was it? Four of their losses, I mean, were to teams that were in the top ten. So it's it's not like they had a cupcake year, and I think I think they played well for everything that they faced this year. Losing a coach, of you know, one of their middle linebackers, you know, and and still win four games in the SEC, you know, and and, and the couple of games, you know, the Ole Miss and the Missouri games were close. Could have easily pulled those two out. I, I love your optimism. It's great. You're like, we, we could have beat all the teams. There's no re- We were beating Alabama 3 nothing. We could have beat them. <laughs> I tell you what, yeah, th- th- that game, I was I was deer hunting, and and I was like following a little bit of the first half. And, you know, they, again, like you said, they were 3 nothing. They were in the red zone and, you know, could have gone up 10 to nothing. And then, you know, of course, I think that's when all hell broke loose for them. And then when I got back to the hotel room that night and, I actually hit my phone a button on my phone so it turned on the post game and and they were talking about how Kentucky was in the game mm-hmm. I was like oh you know maybe it's not that bad and then I looked at the score and it was like 63 to 3 and I'm like holy crap <laughs> <laughs> I was uh mad I was nervous you weren't going to answer my call today because uh you found a little time for the little people. I see you on Jocko's podcast. You're hanging out with Toby Keith. You're giving pep talks to every team in the country. I appreciate you sparing a few minutes for your old-time friend, man. So thank you. Hey, you know, you, I always talk about it when I go out and speak. And actually, back in February before the pandemic happened, I, I had a chance to speak at my dad's church in, in Virginia where I went to high school. And and I've really only been back a few times. So this is the first time I've spoke there. 
And and the one thing, like I started out speaking because I was in Germany this time, and I actually stayed in front of the ICU bed at Launch Tool, you know, probably the one I was in. And then I finished, you know, been all over the world, been all over the country and, you know, spoken to many people. But you know, it's an important thing to realize is like where you come from and, and, and the journey that you venture down, because in a matter of seconds, you can go right back to that hospital bed or, you know, and, and for me, it's like just so blessed and grateful for the people that's come in my life for the these last 13, 14 years, you know, and and, you know, I from from where i've been and how i grew up to where i am today and it's just anything i can do to like you know to, to make my kids and live a better life than i lived growing up but you know everything that i faced growing up it taught me so much about life you mentioned growing up in virginia kentucky kid would you grow up back and forth in those two states i did my uh, so my dad was actually he he's a kentucky boy as well mm-hmm. and uh and him and my mom got divorced when I was like a year or two old, but he was living in Virginia where I was born because he worked at Fort Lee with the defense commissary agencies. And um, so once I moved away from there, my mom and I come back to Kentucky. We lived here until my right through my freshman year in high school. And then my mom was dealing with some, some issues and my dad was stepped in, was like, you're coming to live with me. And because um, I, I typically just go there for summer, spring breakers, you know, the break times and, I lived there for the last three years, and and that's the one thing being back in in Virginia and Dinwiddie. It's, you know, I've probably only lived there five years, if that. But you know, from the time that I moved back in high school, you know, the community, the students, my my classmates, they like you know helped me out so much, and they become really good friends. And then, you know, when I got hurt, that whole community, I mean, they stood behind me and they were there, every bit of it, and you know, and. I always just think back to, you know, when I first got hurt that, you know, the amount of visitors I had from, from Dinwiddie and then, you know, them putting a banner up in the, the gym, you know, and it's just, you know, I, I live in Kentucky today, but it's to me, Virginia is, you know, it, it's just their down home country, good folk, you know, and they love their country and they'll do anything they can to support you. You speak very passionately about sports. Did you play, uh, play any sports growing up when you went any good? I, I just I played. No, I was, I, you know, I played. I, I kind of went back and forth. You know, baseball was my big thing all the way up until my 13 year old league. And I mean, little league, I was a pitcher. I played first base and stuff. And um, and then in my junior, my when I was 13, my last year of baseball, our team actually won the the city championship. But I was kind of like, I was transitioning out of it. I wasn't really into it. I was just there. I got into playing basketball. And then then you know, the one thing that helped me a lot is. You know, the the one thing when you got home, you know, my, it's like you always went outside. I had a basketball go in the front of my house that was in the street. Mm-hmm. My house was on top of a hill. So if you hit the rim one different way, it's going to go down a hill. <laughs> but uh, but you get out and you start dribbling the basketball and people will come out. Kids will come out. And, um, so, you know, and then once I got to the Dinwiddie, I played football. I played I played tennis. Um, it, just anything I could to stay busy and stay active. I had you on a few years ago, and I felt like I rushed your story, and when people start hearing the beginning of this podcast, they're going to hear you were deer hunting, and then a minute later, you said when you were hurt. So is it cool if we go more in-depth into your story about what happened to you? Most definitely. Do you ever, yeah. do you ever get tired of telling the story? I don't because, you know, the one thing when I when I speak and I share my story, it you know, I, I'm supposed to be there to, like, motivate and inspire those in the stand, the audience, and 
you know, every time I share my story and, and, and the life that it's been the last 14 years, it, it motivates me and encourages me to keep living this life because I know somewhere someone out there is, is you know, listening to certain words in my speech and and they might be having those difficult days, those struggles, and they're finding ways to like, you know what, I'm going to defeat this. Not today, Satan. And it helps them move on, you know, those challenges. I remember actually a few years ago I, I did an event with uh, – it was yeah, – I surprised Toby Keith actually in Nashville for an award thing. I love how you, I love how you just name drop Toby Keith because he's your man, <laughs> so I love how you just say it. I tell you what, he's a, he's the most humble celebrity superstar there is out there, and I give him grief every time. I, and I, I'll, I could share a little later on how we met and stuff, but – but I, I did this and I put my this Facebook Instagram status up and just kind of, again, talking about like where I come from. My mom was paycheck to paycheck. So I learned to appreciate everything that was given. My dad was different because he had a good, good job, but he also taught me how to work, work ethic and, and, and then going to the Marines and injury and all this stuff. And somehow this lady found my email and she emailed me a couple days after the event and said, you don't know me, and we'll probably never meet, but I'm a huge fan of Toby Keith. Uh, I read your post, and I Googled your story, and if it wasn't for me reading your post and look, looking up your story, then I would have committed suicide. Whoa. And I, and I read that, and I'm like, you know, that's – you know, at the end of the day, no matter what I'm facing, no matter what struggles, we're all facing the same stuff. You know, it might be differently. It might be burns, amputations, or just a bad day, but we all deal with these difficult days, and – if I can help her save her life, then, then, and then there's, you know, that's that one person. And I remember when I first got hurt, I always told people if I can inspire, motivate, and encourage one person a day, then that's why God kept me alive. Now, how about for you? Is it therapeutic for you at all, too, going through it? Like, listen, I know a lot of addicts, and I know uh, a bunch of people who have gone through a lot of stuff. And sometimes when they speak motivationally, it helps them therapeutically and for their self growth. Does that help for you? It does. It does a lot. And it's, uh, you know, and and with each step that I, you know, when I go out and do these events, with each step that I take, I know it's a step in the right direction. It's that forward movement, you know, and and overcome anything in life. You know, people that have those dark days. It's like we just got to keep moving forward. We got to keep moving on. You know, the the further you move on, the further away you're you're walking away from that that bad memory, that thought, or that you know whatever it is that's holding you back. So, that's you know, such a military like, mindset. Keep going forward, moving forward. No, nothing's stopping us. I love it, man. It's it's still in your heart. Now, you, you mentioned your father was in the military. He served this great country. Was that always on your radar? Like, I'm going to follow my dad's footsteps and join this and serve this country? Somebody asked me that before, like, if, if the military was my just path. And and I didn't realize it then, but because it's, you know, but both my grandparents served, my, my uncle served, my dad, of course, and my cousin and like it was not on my my mind at all until September 11, 2001. And, um, you know, and around that time is when I moved with my dad. And, you know, I'd go in and out of the mall in Virginia. I'd go with my dad to work at Fort Lee. And you see the, the Army, the soldiers and the military. And, um, you know, so I started thinking about it then. And then, you know, my dad was in the Air Force. So he was like, because at first, you know, that during that time, Black Hawk Down came out and, um, that was my favorite movie. So I looked at Rangers and my dad was like, well, won't you look in the Air Force? And I looked in their special forces and it's like a year and a half, two years long training wise. And I wanted to do, I wanted to be deployed. I didn't want to wait around and actually ran into the Marine Corps recruiter. We played basketball together and 
took us to Hooters and <laughs> and you were sold. <laughs> yep. Uh, but Matt, you mentioned you were uh, when nine eleven happened. I knew you were a freshman in high school, and I it's I try to think back. I have a little cousin, and she's uh, sixteen and a half, and she's a junior in high school. And I'm thinking, holy crap! Two years ago, imagine her talking about joining the military. So nine eleven had that much of an impact on you that you knew as a freshman in high school you were going to join. I did, and you know it's interesting to look back because you know the Marine Corps they stay about one hundred eighty, hundred ninety thousand, you know, and and I want to say around after nine eleven, twenty some thousand joined the Marines, and it just bumped it up. But you know, as you and I mentioned, you know that we live in the, the United States of America, and this is the greatest country in the world, and and how blessed and grateful we are for the freedoms and the liberties we have that. You know, it it comes with a price. Many people has given their lives so we could be free and so we could do these podcasts and I can go speak and do these events and you could live your life and I could live my life, you know, and and, you know, I'm just I'm blessed to live here. And if anything I could do to give back to, you know, a little bit to this country that's given me so much, then then I'm willing to do it over and over again. Whenever you tell your story, and I've heard you tell it on so many different podcasts and shows all over Kentucky, everywhere, Jocko's podcast, you mentioned 9-11, I wanted to join, and then we fast forward to you joining uh, and going to Paris Island. Tell me, take me to September 11th. First of all, how'd you hear the news, and what was your immediate thought when it went through your head? I was actually walking from uh, first period to second period as a George Rogers Clark High School in Winchester, Kentucky, and... And, you know, the my first period was in the Votech building, which is out back. And I was going to second period, which is in the main building. And my friend who was coming the other direction, going to the Votech building, told me that the first plane flew into the building. And I didn't think much about it. You know, we went throughout the day and there was no TVs on. But you start hearing a little bit of rumblings because where our high school and the county that we're living in is located so close to the um, – the bluegrass depot where they got you know, mustard gas stored and all these chemicals, which, you know, in Madison County, they actually shut school down that day after the, the, the plane tax. So, you know, you start hearing rumblings, but you know, when you get home that night from school, you walk in and like nobody's outside playing sports, you know, everybody's just sitting around the table and you, you just, and I, you know, the one image is seeing Americans just leap for their lives, you know, 80 floors up, 90 floors up, because they feel like that's the safest way and the easiest way out. And, um, you know, and it, you see that and you just the next couple of days, you know, President Bush going down on ground zero, which is probably one of my favorite videos of all time, you know, and and his speech and how emotional he was. And and it just the way he handled the whole situation, you know, and 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 I didn't really realize that until after my injuries and what I actually walked down on ground zero with some of the firefighters who were there, you know, and to hear their emotion and their voice, you know, as they kind of explain where I'm at. And, you know, this is where, um, you know, World Trade Center Tower one, you know, or this is where this building was setting one time. And when you mentioned George Bush, when he gave the speech and one of the firemen yelled, I can't hear you. And he's like, I can hear you. All of America can hear you. It's one of his greatest. The world's about unbelievable, world's about right? Hear you. <laughs> um, hey, obviously you couldn't enlist then when you were a freshman. Uh, in the back of your mind, you knew you were going to join the military. You were going to do this. Was that your only? Like, were you uh, tunnel visioned in high school? Like, okay, I'm just wasting time. I got to finish up to go to the military. Or while you became a junior and a senior, you were like, okay, maybe I'll do something else. So uh, my senior year in high school, I turned my birthday's in August, so I turned 18 before my senior year. 
like so i didn't need parental signatures so i i actually enlisted and signed the paperwork on my own and december of my senior year i went through the delayed entry program and and i realized then because they told me it's like all we need is your diploma because I, I was i was your typical high school student i went there to play sports i hung out with my friends you know and and then maybe i did my schoolwork. you know if it was an interesting <laughs> class then i would do my schoolwork. if i didn't like it then then i would take a nap but um <laughs> But, you know, uh, you know, December of my senior year, I knew that all I needed to do was just graduate, give them my diploma. I had my date set to go to Paris Island and, you know, I, I need to prepare myself and and get ready for this. And, you know, I, I didn't really I mean, you watch videos of like boot camp and you, you kind of understand what's going to happen. But, you know, I was I was ready to make that decision. I remember I had a teacher because, you know, everyone that graduates and they go out to college and. At Dinwiddie, they, they put a star up on the wall of, like, your name and where you're going to college. And they put mine up there, USMC. And once my teacher found that out, she was just, like, you know, so proud of me. And, you know, and again, 2001, 2003, you, you see all the American flags, the yellow ribbons, proud Americans, you know, the unity. And, um, and, and I was in on that. You know, I was the kid rocking around with my Marine Corps shirt on, proud. You know, to join the Marines, I had the yellow ribbon with the USMC, mm -hmm. you know, labeled on it on, you know, the bumper stickers. And like I I was sold like I mean, I was proud of the decision I made. And, um, and you know, I, it, it was I, I loved it. Was it always the Marines? I know we took you to Hooters. I know we played basketball with you. But as you kind of got near the finish line, were you thinking, OK, maybe Navy, maybe Air Force, maybe Army? No, I, I was, I mean, at that time, I just wanted to serve. I just mm -hmm. wanted to wear the uniform and, you know, like I, I met with the Army, I met with the Air Force and the Marine Corps just, they, they, they're like, well, infantry will go right over. And, and, and looking back and everything that's happened to me, it was the, the greatest decision, you know, and, and I'm sure the other military branches, they look at through their own, maybe just as good as the Marines did. But I tell you what. Eight years after being out of the Marines, the Wounded Warrior Regiment still contacts me to check in on me today. Oh, I love it. And now, what do you, I know a Marine is what, never retired. So what do you, what do you consider yourself still? I just call myself a Marine. Corporal you know, Bradford, right? Yeah, Corporal Bradford, Marine, retired, you know, and it's, uh, I, I just, uh, you know, the, to be in the Brotherhood and to have that title of Marine for the rest of my life, you know, to, to teach my kids, you know, the, you know, the Semper Fidelis, always faithful, honor, courage, and commitment, you know, and it's, it's everything about the Marine Corps that, that I live each day, because again, going back to 2007, if it wasn't for those simple things as, you know, attitude is everything and, um, uh, attitude, um, adapt and overcome, you know, those things right there, it's like, you're going to face those bad days, those struggles. But you know what? If you wake up every day, like you're going to go to go on a combat patrol, you're going to put your gear on and you're going to war every day, you know, and it's just like you got to look at life that way. You know, things going to get thrown in your way. God's going to throw obstacles your way. It's not to you know, to, to defeat you. It's to test you and to make you stronger, you know, and when you graduate high school, you join the Marines, you go to Paris Island, you're there for a little bit. And then I was shocked. When I heard you got stationed in Hawaii, because I was just always under the impression I have a lot of friends that are in the military that, you know, you 
You hang out on the East Coast. If you're an East Coast guy, how'd you get stationed in Hawaii? And was it at all glorious? It might be a silly question. Was it at all like, all right, I'm going to Hawaii. Like, come on, think about that. Well, it's funny because people always ask me, like, where were you stationed? It's like, oh, you West Coast Marines. Like, no, I'm East Coast Marine ship way west. Because <laughs> typically, I mean, like you said, if you're East Coast Marine, 90, 98% of you is going to stay in Lejeune. And um, so once we were starting hearing some rumblings, an SOI that a select few of us, the 11s, 0311s, is going to go to 2-3 in Hawaii. But then they were like, you know, a select few, you know. So we're like, well, whatever. We're just going to stay here in Camp Lejeune. And, and they give you like a wish list, and I, I, there's not much to it. I think it's just a check in the box. But three locations I wanted to go was Okinawa, Camp Pendleton, or Camp Lejeune, and they pretty much stuck me right in the middle of Okinawa <laughs> and Pendleton. But, but you know, it was a whole – it was our whole group of – 0311s and the next company of 0311s so they had a huge drop in hawaii and i tell you what growing up in kentucky and virginia i did did not want to be stationed in camp lejeune even though that was probably very likely but it it was pretty cool to land in in honolulu go to waikiki every weekend when i had money to walk out of your barracks catwalk on the second deck and you know you look at the the mountains you know or you're going to go to the beach today our rifle range was like setting up on like kind of like a little little incline. You just overlook into the water, you know, hitting against the rocks, and you might see a whale jump every now and then. It was pretty awesome to be. So in there Hawaii. were there were some pluses to it. So you're not going to say it was all pretty bad, right? No, and and you know what? I always tell people it's like you know you look at a, a flight and a hotel room today. I got a free trip by the government to go live there. <laughs> Hey, how long are you in Hawaii before you get the call that you're on standby and you guys are getting ready to deploy? Well, uh, two, three, I actually just got back from Afghanistan when I got there in the middle of March. And um, so once uh, once I got there, we pretty much went straight into a workup because the rotation of the units was going back and forth. Like one, three would be overseas, two, three would be a workup, three, three would be getting back. And it would just, it would go, go, go. And um, so the minute I got there, we went right into a workup to deploy in September. And, um, so there was no really messing around and kind of like, you know, yeah, Monday through Friday, we'd be out in the field, but you know, Saturday and Sunday would be, you know, enjoying our time there, but it was, it was, we hit the ground running. That's for sure. So now you are seeing guys who just came back from Afghanistan then, right? Yes. When I, I actually just flew uh, three weeks ago and I watched platoon for the first time, Oliver Stone's platoon and, you know, Charlie Sheen and those guys land and guys are leaving Vietnam and they're like, dude, you're F. This is hell. This is the worst place ever. What is? What are you hearing while you're in Hawaii? Like you said, you're on the beach and now guys are coming back. What are they telling you? Um, you know, we were kind of like really blessed with some amazing leaders and seniors. Um, you know, they, they, they wanted to make sure that we learned everything that they knew and that they were going to train us to the best, you know, what we're going to, I think, you know, when we first started to work up, we didn't know we were going to Iraq or at, you know, where we were going, but they always just kept telling us that, you know what? They, they could call us today, mm-hmm. tonight, and we'll be leaving tomorrow. So make sure you're ready and you're prepared. But it was, uh, you know, they also always told us that, you know what, we're going to go on this deployment and you're all going to come home. I'll do whatever I can to get you home. And, um, you know, and those leaders, the, those brothers, just, just amazing, you know, and, and the friendships, the friendships that I've, you know, got from those guys now and just uh, – you know, you, you get there and you get you get kind of get your feet wet a little bit and you get and, and then you realize like you start looking at this guy that might be a year 
your age or a year older mm-hmm. and you look up to him like a hero. Like I want to make sure that I'm going to lead my Marines just like he's leading me right now. And I want to take every minute that I have of learning from him, you know, and it's just these guys are, they're your heroes. Now, Corporal, how do you get the call where you're going? How does that call happen? Take me to, like, as a civilian, take me to that call. Okay, guys, you're heading to this city, this country. How does it come down? Do you know how long of a time frame do you have to know when you're leaving? Is it like, guys, pack up, we're leaving tomorrow? How does that work? It's, it's pretty much, you got your timeline. Like the, the whole month, of, the end of June, early July, we were in CACs for our, our pre-deployment training, which is about 30 days long. And then we knew by that time, somewhere around the 1st of September, we were going to be deployed. And, you know, once we get back from CACs, it's it's pretty much just like, start packing your stuff up. You go on pre-deployment leave and... Um, you know, figuring out where we're going in Iraq was way above my pay grade. I just, I just do what I'm told, <laughs> but, that, uh, what, but, you know, we, yeah. had, but we, you know, we got back, uh, I, I come home, Kentucky, Virginia, and then I got back to Hawaii. And I, I want to say we had about a couple of weeks, a week left. And that was basically just, you know, barracks inspection, packing up your stuff, um, getting your gear ready to go. And, you know, in the middle of the night, we left Hawaii for the last time. Oh, what city did you go to in Iraq? I was in Haditha. Haditha is northwest Iraq, which is uh, not too far from the Syrian border. It's right on the Euphrates River. And, um, you know, like you just mentioned about platoon, you know, we were in al-Assad, and the Marines for 3-3, who we were relieving, actually told us the same thing, that they felt bad with the situation that we're getting ready to get in. You know, it's tough there. And I swear to God, I mean, it was like the first 40 days, I think we had a, a casualty a day on average. And um, the unit that we relieved, 3-3, they lost uh, 14 Marines. Oh and, and and throughout our deployment, our battalion lost 23 Marines. So mm. a lot of blood was shed in that Haditha triad because the way we were split up, Haditha was the main element, and that was Echo Company, my company. And then you had Barwana across the river where um, I think that was Fox Company, and then you had Hawkonia to the south, and that was Golf Company. And so we, you know, and Haditha Dam, which is the largest dam in the country, is kind of where the battalion head at, headquarters was at, at first. So it's, um, you know, these little river towns, and Haditha was the last kind of stronghold for Al-Qaeda. I mean, you had Fallujah, you had Ramadi, and, um, you know, they had their stronghold in Haditha, and we were there to push them out. And, um, you know, like 14 Marines for 3-3, 23 for 2-3, and 1-3 that really dust didn't have any casualties at all, so... We lost a lot of blood in, in, in 06, 07, but, you know, at the end of the day, we did our job. Daily, day-to-day operations or routines, what were they like? And I know every, no day's routine, anytime any military guy, especially while you guys are fighting for this country. What was it like patrolling there? What was your day-to-day operations like? You know, we were split. Like, you know, within our company, we had four platoons. Um, you know, we had a platoon that was mobile, QRF. We had two platoons that would rotate back and forth between post and patrol duties, and then we had a platoon that kind of worked with uh, the Iraqi police, um, Army. And, um, you know, our mobile unit got hit so hard when we first got there that they actually changed out platoons because they lost so many Marines either through, you know, wounds or being killed. But, um, you know, when you're on post, you're on post. You, You man the post for, I think, 10 days, and then when you're on patrol, you're just go, go, go. And it's, you know, maybe two or three patrols a day but up to three hours or depends on you know how long you're out there for 
it could be like a patrol base and you're out for three or four days and then you come home. But it's, uh, you know, we were foot patrols the whole time and I always tell people when they're like, would you rather be mobile or foot? And I always tell them foot because it was just, you know, you see the mobile unit get hit so hard and, and kind of when you're on foot, you, you got a better, you know, scene. you could look around a little bit more and you could see what's in front of you and, I felt more comfortable walking the streets and, um, and that's what we did. We, I, I still today, I could probably patrol up and down those streets just because, um, but you know, it, like it was a, it was a pretty good sized town. And, you know, once you go through the whole brief and you get to get where you're going, why you're going and, you know, it's, it's basically just to make yourself present in the community and, and you know, to, to be there for the, the Iraqis who also want these insurgents out of there, you know, and, they want to live a safe life too, you know, and you're there to help them out. And, and those Iraqis, those people that lived in Haditha, they wanted us there. And, you know, and, you know, when you see kids play soccer, you're out there with them, you know, and you're letting them know that under all this armor and under this gear, you're a person and, you know, and almost a kid too. Well, you just nailed the kid thing. Cause I always find it mind boggling that when you speak of these stories, we're older now, but there were, it was a group of 19, 20 year old kids over there fighting to protect our freedom you guys are literally changing the world did any of that even creep into your mind or you guys were just young and didn't give an f because you're over them at 19 20 years old and i know you have kids can you picture in a few years like it doesn't comprehend like oh my god these are late teenagers early 20s not even old enough to legally drink yet and you're fighting for this country fighting a war did any of that ever sink into you guys i, I don't think so i think we were just there doing our job you know they kept us so busy and, uh, you know, when, when we were in Iraq in 06, that the only way that we could really communicate with anybody anybody back in the States is, you know, letter in the mail. Like we had three laptops, but we only could get on those for 30 minutes, and it takes 29 minutes to even log on to the laptop because <laughs> the signal was so bad. And, you know, and we had a TV in our chow hall, but it was like, you know, when you got chow, it was basically get your tray and go. You know, you don't have time to sit and wait. And it was uh, – so it was literally it was go, go, go. And – um. You know, and it, it didn't really. You feel a lot older than you really are when you when you're over there, and when you do big boy things. Yeah, you know, you're just kind of just getting. You know, you're. We were living in. You know, our fob was in the middle of town, so we were living in Iraqi homes. You know, our platoon was in one house, another platoon was in another house, and you get to know those guys. And like we had PSPs, so we did get to be like kids a little bit. And PSPs back in the day was a big thing, and. Actually, that was one of my first things. I mailed my dad. I was like, hey, can you send me some socks, some skivvy shirts, and a PSP, and here's the game I want. (laughs) What game was it, Matt? NCAA college football. Um, I I think it was probably to be 07, either 06 or 07. But, you know, that was, uh, you know, once we got off patrol, you know, we just kind of sat there. And and the big thing back then, too, because you could sync your PSPs together and you Mm -hmm. could play each other, you know, it was a. but, it, you know, just keep make sure you keep your rifles clean, you know, enjoy yourself and just kind of, you know, I, I think enjoy the opportunity you have to get to know these guys, you know, and because we were getting hit so hard in Iraq that, you know, you, you didn't know if you were going to come home with any of them, you know, or, you know, you see your friend one minute and then you get the, the report over the radio that he's been killed in action. You know, it's you take advantage of those opportunities that you have together. When you hear that, Matt, when you hear about one of your friends getting killed, how as a human don't you just, you know, want to go on a rampage? You have so much, you know, 
venom now in you that one of your brothers just got killed. How do you control yourself? Because, you know, it is a touchy subject when you're over there. You don't know who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. How do you control yourself with those feelings and emotions? It's tough because, you know, like when when, when the Donald Brown, I wear his bra- uh, bracelet on my left forearm or my left wrist. And, you know, we found out about him getting killed while we were out in the middle of in the middle of the shit, pretty much, you know, it was like, there was like gunfights going on all over the place. And it's like, you, you got to learn to control it, you know, and you got to understand that uh, there's no time to sit back and think about it because, you know, there might, the minute you get complacent, then another Marine might go down. Another friend might go down that you got to make sure you're at it. 110% always looking around doing your job and, and making sure you're staying focused. Initial thoughts of Iraq, because you mentioned kids playing soccer, some people that wanted you. Was it anything good or redeeming that you're like, you know what? I know obviously the bad people are bad, but there was a lot of good things there too? You know, just 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 being there and seeing like, you know, yeah, you run into some good people and some bad people and stuff like that. But it's just uh, to know that those people are trying to change their city and get these bad people out, you know, and, and you're, you're doing these – you're creating the police department there and you're trying to get more people to stand up for their communities and, you know, understand that we're there to help them out, you know, and cause a lot of these people that they, if, if the bad guys know that, that they're like communicating with the Marines, then, then they could lose their life or their family could lose their lives. And so it, it was very hard, but you know, it, you understand. And like when you walk into somebody's house and you're, you're letting them know that, you know, we're here to help we're here to assist and if you need anything let us know and um but you know i remember being over in iraq and it's some of the most humbling experiences like you know waking up every morning you know you're on a rooftop or you're in the middle and you know the sun is setting and you just look up and you see the this beautiful sky above you know the god painted this beautiful vision you know the sun sets the sun rises and you understand that no matter where you are in the world and how much evil is around you, you know, I could walk out of this compound wall or they could drop a mortar on us right now and we could be dead. But no matter where you are, that God's always looking out for us, you know, and you just look up and you see the beautiful sunsets and sunrises. And and it, it, it gave me the strength and the courage to like, when I leave this compound wall, I'm going to be fine because I'm in God's hands right now. And good will always defeat evil. And then I remember one, you know, on top of our COC in the middle of our FOB, you know, th- the most beautiful thing in the world over a city that has been in combat for years and years, even before we got there. And the buildings and the houses are mud huts. They're not like they have here, even though there are some nice homes over there, though. But there's an American flag. And at the end of the day, no matter if you're serving as a Marine or in the, you're an Army, Air Force, Navy, we all serve underneath that flag. And, you know, you got the 50 United, you got the stars representing unity on one background and you got the red which represents sacrifice you know and we dealt a lot of sacrifice in that country and and those guys who sacrificed their lives and were wounded and still facing the injuries of post-traumatic stress today or traumatic brain injury it, it was for a good cause because of that flag that flag that we love and represent and you know when people talk about today about like what is your legacy you know and, and i know what my legacy is for my, my family and my kids but you know what? My legacy is making sure that flag still stands at the top of the flagpole. You know, the minute that flag comes down for good and that means destruction and that means bad people have taken over. 
as long as that flag flies at the top of that flagpole, then I know that losing my legs and losing my vision was well worth it. And I would go back and do it all over again, just because I love this country so much. And I love what that flag represents. Well, thanks, Matt, for telling everybody you lost your legs and vision. Spoiler alert. So let's get to that then. <laughs> how long? How I, had, I had to throw out the hat, no legs, no vision part, you know? So. Well, 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 there we go. The first half was about getting to know Matthew Bradford, Corporal Bradford, and now we'll talk about that horrific day. How long were you in Iraq before that happened? So I actually landed in Kuwait September 11th, which is Oh, wow. You know, that's ironic. Interesting. But, um, but, you know, it's funny you look back. You know, I told you I wanted to deploy. I, I went to boot camp September 6, 2005, and I was in Kuwait September 11th, so a year and five days. Wow. But um, but I was over there for about, what, four and a half, five months. January 18, 2007 was when I was wounded. But, now, um, you know, yeah. Matt, real quick, before we talk about January 18th, before that incident happened, did you notice positive change or difference, things going for the better, swinging towards the good people before that happened? I did, you know, and, and the work that we were doing over there, we, we'd stop traffic in the town, you know, and we kind of limited a lot of the stuff going on in town and our patrols. And, you know, you, you don't get into many gunfights. You don't see much insurgency going on in the area. And people were starting to come out in the streets. And, um, you know, we started seeing that because we did get hit a lot with snipers. But, um, you know, to defeat snipers, you, you stop some caught traffic. You, they can't drive. You know, and we started doing a lot of the census and doing like patrolling around the streets to, you know, and doing all the stuff that, you know, we were there to do. And, and you start seeing the stuff like turning from, like I mentioned, the first 40 days of being there to December and January when it had a lot of quiet days. Here we go. Take us to that day, Matt. Take us to January 18th. What happens? And just give us the whole the whole day. What Before the incident happens, is it routine for you? You're waking up. Are you getting complacent? Or are you still like on the ball? So January 18, 2007, it's interesting because I actually called home and I spoke to my uncle right before um, we were getting ready to get briefed. And I was, I was excited because I'm like, you know, we're at the end of this deployment, you know, we're wrapping it up. And I was just telling him, I'm like, hey, I'm ready to come home. You know, I'm excited about it. And um, sadly, I don't remember much after the, the, the phone call, the brief, the first part of the patrol. But what, what I do remember is the last few seconds. You know, I walked point next to my team leader who was to my left for the majority of the patrol, hundreds and hundreds of patrols. And, you know, every time we left the FOB, we come back with the same amount of Marines we left it with. And, um, you know, you always look for these suspicious items, you know, because that's how a lot of insurgents mark either weapons cache or, or ID emplacements. And as I'm walking past this on this road called Park Place, it laid parallel to the Freddy's River. And on my right was kind of a little grassy area and then a compound wall that opened up and, you know, and, and past that compound wall was just a big, large area of palm trees called the palm groves. And I saw a white bag leaned up against a tree about 30 yards off to my right. And I let everybody know behind me, like, hey, the white bag up here, you know, keep your eyes out. And the minute I turned back around, there was a ditch that laid perpendicular to the road that I was standing on. And, um, it went inside of a pipe underneath the road. And, and the minute I looked down, I saw the command wires right there. And in a matter of seconds, it exploded directly underneath me. I mean, when I, when I say underneath me, I'm talking about like inches underneath me. And, um, you know, it sent shrapnel into both my eyes. It, uh, it removed my left leg at the blast. My right leg was severely damaged. And, um, you know, and, and 
being conscious through a lot of it. You know, you hear hear the, the, the squad leader, you know, calling in for QRF and you hear the Marines around you talking and, and getting you out of the danger zone. And then, you know, uh, one of my closest friends, one of those amazing seniors told me um, last year, you know, when he ran up on me, he saw me laying, you know, on the ground, you know, trying to get up. And as they were trying to put me on the litter kit, I kept trying to get back up. And they, they had to hold me down. But then, at, at you know, once they re- realized, okay, come on, you know, let him get up or whatever. You know, as they're kidding me on the litter kit, you know, I got one arm around one Marine, another arm around another Marine, you know. And and those Marines, you know, th- this is the worst injury that, that we've seen. I mean, we got engaged by the enemy more times than, you know, probably more times out of the, out of every other squad in the company. But again, like we we handled it and we got ourselves out of those situations. And, uh, you know, and one of my best friends who was directly behind me was holding my hand because they didn't think I would be able to make it. They didn't think I was going to live from this. And um, as QRF showed up, you know, the Marine Corps is a small world. And and my staff sergeant Clark, one of my my senior drill instructor, who was a platoon sergeant with QRF. um, You'll be fine, Bradford. That's the last hurt. The words I heard before I closed my eyes and passed out. And, um, you know, I woke up three weeks later from a coma to find out that I wasn't in Iraq no more. You know, I was in the United States. I I don't have legs. I don't have vision. You know, I got all this wires and cords and my right hand. I can't even use my right hand anymore. And, and, and I felt the depression and, and the sadness, like the, the one the people that I want to be around, I'm not around. No, I don't know who all these people in this room is. And, you know, my dad told me I lost my legs. Like it devastated me because, and I just remember laying there in that bed crying, hoping one of those tears will hit my legs and the legs would scroll back, you know, and I didn't care much for my vision. Uh, I really, there's enough stuff out there, that, you know, maybe you can get your vision one day. And I just wanted my legs back because you see this stuff on TV all the time happen to other people. Uh-huh. But you never realize it's going to happen to you. Matt, were you the only one injured during this? My team leader to the left took shrapnel on his leg mm-hmm. and um, very severe injury. You know, he almost bled out as well. And I didn't know he was injured until a few weeks after I got out of ICU. Three weeks you're in there. Where do you even wake up? Fifth floor in Bethesda, Maryland, kind of. Yeah, we were. Uh, and then, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I had the image of the white bag and the command wires and all this stuff in my head. And I never knew what it was because I kept seeing this image in my head. And then three months later, a couple of my friends, one of them was the one holding my hand directly behind me in the patrol. He's He was kind of explaining. He's like, yeah, you know, you, you turned around and yelled about a white bag. And next thing you know, the explosion happened. And I was like, well, that makes sense because I keep seeing this white bag in my head right now. And you kind of learn just put two and two together. Matt, when you're laying in the hospital, how do they break that news to you? Because, listen, we always talk about, oh, you know, you lost your legs, you lost your eyes. How do they tell you, hey, you're not going to walk ever again and you're not going to see? Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting because you talk about phantom pains. And the phantom pains in my legs were so strong. And, like... I had to get onto my dad because my dad was standing there talking to my doctor a lot of times and he would whisper. And, and like, here I am thinking in my head, like these guys have, they, I'm captured. <laughs> like they're going to cut my head off here, you know? And, but it, it was, uh, I think it, it just, 
there was my dad was in the room with me one night and i think it just come to the point where he he just i needed to know and he just told me and um you know and you talk about the depression the guilt being home and all this stuff and right then and there i didn't want to live no more i wanted to die you know because when i deployed i knew the sacrifice and the risk that could happen to me and the only two ways i wanted to come home is with my brothers or not come home at all Oof. and um you know and and here i am like i never thought about the middle part like coming home this way and i wouldn't eat i was so skinny like the the literally the hospital band would go all with my armpit i'm like you know what i'm just gonna lay here i'm gonna be mad mm-hmm. and I, i'm just gonna lay here and die to me that's the only way to go go out now how long are you in the hospital so i was in i got to i got injured on the 18th of january and i was in bethesda by the 21st I was in Bethesda until March 21st, and then um, I went from there to Richmond, Virginia, to the Polytrauma Center for traumatic brain injury, and I was there for a couple more months as well. And then once I left Richmond, Virginia, I went back to Bethesda for prosthetic eyes, and then they flew me to San Antonio for my prosthetic at the Center for the Intrepid. During this whole time, are you still depressed, still still suicidal? Like, why are you wasting time? I don't even want to do this anymore. So when I – um. It's funny. The, I wouldn't eat anything, and and the corpsmen, they were, they didn't take no for an answer, and they. <laughs> so one of the corpsmen one night, she made a batch of brownies in the glass, and she brought in a think, carton of milk for me, and I told her no, I'm not eating. She's like, eat it. So I ended up eating like two brownies, and I, and I remember the next morning I woke up and it's like something changed. Like then I had these Marines that would come in my room every day and talk with me. And they, you know, even if I tried to play possum, try to think I was sleeping, it was like, no, wake up. We know you're awake. <laughs> but, but, you know, those, those Marines would talk to me more about, not about like my military service, but just about life in general. Mm-hmm. And then I had, I had two Marines who I served with in Iraq. Um, one lost a leg and one was shot in the head. And um, every opportunity they had, they would come to my hospital room and talk with me and, and, and just hearing those familiar voices. And, you know, I, I was so depressed and in tears finding out my injuries. And the minute that I left Bethesda, I was in tears because I finally had the point where I, I could trust these people that's helping me out. And, um, you know, I, so I was, I was in a good state of mind then, but I still had a lot of bad days. And I think the one thing when I look back that my trip to Richmond, Virginia, I think is when I really kind of transitioned into like, Okay, you know, I could do this. I could defeat the, this. And it was these three three different moments. One of them. So in Richmond, Virginia, I was getting out, going to OT, physical therapy, all this stuff in my wheelchair. And But every time I was in my wheelchair, I always had a poncho line or a blanket that would cover my amputations. Because I felt I, I felt secured. I was like, okay, this blanket's going to cover up my amputations where nobody can see that I have no legs. But, you know, it, it helped get me out of the room and get around people so I could better myself because I realized, you know, it's better. You're, you got to better yourself first. You got to take care of yourself before you can go do anything. Having that poncho liner on my lap, you know, it, it gave me a security blanket. But I slowly started taking it off because I'm like, you know what? I, I'm OK with this. I'm comfortable. This is me now. And then the second story was the doctor of the polytrauma ward. Every afternoon would come in my hospital room and he would talk with me, but he didn't talk to me, you know, a normal person with vision. He would cover his eyes like you can't see me, Matt, so I can't see you. 
and it gave me the trust that I could open up to him and he's not looking at my facial expressions. He's not trying to like, you know, get anything out of this, but he took the time out of his busy schedule and the effort to come in and talk with me every day to see how I am. Not, not how my therapy is going, but how I am as a person. And the third part is I had a speech therapist and I told her day one, like, look, this is how I spoke before. Right. I'm Kentucky, Virginia. I got an accent. <laughs> and, um, and, and the next day, she walked back into the room with the, my blind rehab outpatient specialist, and and I didn't know why she was there. And he told me, he's like, well, she still wants to work with you, so she's going to teach you Braille. And so Monday through Friday, sometimes on Saturday for an hour or two each day, her and I would sit, laugh, joke, have a good time, learn Braille. And I found out just, just you know, days before I left Richmond, Virginia, that, you know, just a few weeks before she started seeing me, that she had a miscarriage. And that she was still, you know, she was going through all this stuff on her own. But you know what? For those two hours each day, she was taking her mind off of it. She was learning to smile again and laugh again. And and just a few years ago here, we were in Chicago and we, we were on the bus at o- O'Hare Airport. And the bus driver said, whatever you do in life, you know, when you're around other people, make sure that you're respectful, compassionate and caring because you never know what other people are dealing with. And it, it, it hit me because I thought instantly back to her. She was going through so much. But for that one, two hours each day, she she had to, she got a chance to smile again. You know, and and each day I would go to the, the lobby there at, at the, the ward and I'd sit in this room by myself and I, they had a fish tank and I'd always just hear the water. And, you know, I think back to all these amazing people in my life these last you know few months and mm-hmm. the stories that I'm sh- collecting and. And, and I thought that I could do this. Like, this is just another challenge, another obstacle. You know, although I'm not in combat right now, I'm putting my gear on every day and I'm going out to fight the battles that's in front of me. You mentioned that nurse getting her humor back. When did you get yours? Because your humor is when you and I became friends. When I went down there, I met you and we started joking about stuff. You're showing me that your eyeballs are UK, Kentucky, and your legs have <laughs> Kentucky on it. And my favorite tweet of yours, I'm telling you, it kind of went viral, is when the eclipse was happening and everyone was saying, don't stand up at the sun. And there's a picture of Corp- Corporal Bradford on his front lawn, staring at the sky, saying, I don't see what the big deal is. And a million retweets. How did you get your humor back, and when did you learn to laugh about it? And let me go, because guys in my profession and military, we have that sick sense of humor to deal with stuff. So is that what helped you get your sense of humor back? You know, through through all of that and getting to San Antonio and being around guys with no legs, and I learned then that, you know what, the, the – to kind of help again get me through this, I don't have to la- I don't have to learn to laugh a little bit, you know. And 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 you know, I'd walk in therapy and I'd make jokes at people. I'd have balls thrown at me. I'd get tackled because <laughs> I say something. You know, and it's like I, I realized that okay, like my legs aren't growing back. You know, my vision, you know, it's 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 not ba- it's not there. Mm-hmm. But I'm hopeful that I'll see one day. But you know what? Each day that I'm alive, I'm going to make sure that it's the best day ever. You know, and, and and I just you gotta learn to smile at these things. You gotta learn to laugh. You know, and many people get so discouraged and upset at the the, the smallest things. And you know, and it's like, yeah, I have no legs, I have no vision. Yeah, yeah, I might have some bad days, but you know what? I'm alive. You know, and I live in America. I got a wife and kids. I have amazing friends. It's like, what do I got to be depressed about? You know, and 
yeah, again, I have my bad days, but you know what? My my good days are they outweigh the bad days. That's for sure. You mentioned one time blind school. You had to go to it. What exactly do you do in blind school? Like, do you have to just learn where everything is and how to you know maybe um make your senses a little better? What do you do there? It's so funny when I talk about blind school because it's like blind school, kind <laughs> of. <laughs> You know, um, and it, it's funny. I'll end on something funny too, because when I was when I got my mind right on the direction I wanted to go, my ultimate goal was to re-enlist in the Marines, and I knew what I needed to do. First, I needed to learn learn how to walk on two prosthetic legs, and once I figured that out, I was like, all right, the next thing I need to I need to go to the blind blind rehabilitation school, and and I need to learn everything I can from like computers to like getting around on my own, living on my own. Cause I was very, I'm still today a very independent person. I travel a lot by myself and I take care of myself a lot, like when I'm out by myself. So, so basically I went there and I was there for six, six months and I learned everything I could from independent mobility, um, uh, living on my own, uh, manual skills, uh, um, computers. And, and you know, and it was just like your mind, my, my, my facility was in chicago you live there you take care of yourself and your classrooms are upstairs and um so the last goal like you you know when you're like two weeks done they put you in this like little makeshift apartment in the blind school and you gotta learn to write bills on your own you gotta go grocery shop and you gotta learn to cook dinner and all this stuff and so i mean it's like living life and um but you know you talk about manual skills I, i did woodworking i like woodworking and I built me a birdhouse when I was at the blind school and I always tell people that I don't lose no fingers, you know, and to me, that's a pretty impressive because that table saw is pretty intimidating when you have vision. <laughs> but, but once I left the, the blind school, they gave me a certificate and, and I guess that legally makes me blind now. I don't, I don't get why the certificate comes, but it's just, like hilarious. And, Matt, you could have you know, told them you were blind before you got there, Matt. You didn't need them to tell you that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, why do I go for six months just to get a certificate? I mean, we could have done this, this time, you know, but but I knew that was what I needed to do to, like, you know, make it even more, you know, you know, because I wanted to reenlist and I wanted to make sure I did everything I could to reenlist. And, and you know, and, and through it all and through the connections and relationships I had, you know, having that strong personality, that, that laughter, the humor, you know, people looked at me as, as you know, to, for motivation and. And I always share this story. Um, you know, I was I was learning how to walk one day, and I was so frustrated. I kept tripping over my own feet, bouncing off each wall, and and I didn't want to fall either. But I, I realized, like, how can I not do this? Like, you just learn how to walk on two prostate legs. It can't be that hard. And my therapist stopped me and said, Matt, whatever you do in life, just put one foot forward and walk. Just walk. That's all you got to do. Don't worry about falling. I'm never going to let you fall. So he gave me the confidence that, you know what, all I have to do is just get my feet underneath me and put one forward. Because as we mentioned earlier, I'm moving in the right direction. You know, I, I have two prosthetic legs, but my feet are facing forward. My outlook on life, I don't have vision, but I'm hopeful. And that's all it takes. And I, I thought of that, and then I realized that, you know, each step that I take, I don't know where that step's going to lead me. I could be running into walls, but I knew – Early on through my recovery, outside that hospital door is opportunity, and I needed to get through that door. I need to get out of this hospital bed. I need to leave. If it's a wheelchair, if it's prosthetics, whatever it was, the opportunity was outside the door. 
And I realized then, too, that each day is not guaranteed. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. We need to focus on right now living in the moment. You know, each breath I take, you know, it's not guaranteed. I almost took one wrong step and it lost my life. And it's just that just walk mentality, understanding that whatever difficulty lays in front of you, just put one foot forward. You know, they told us in boot camp, the quickest way off Paris Island is to graduate. You know, the quickest way to do anything is just put one foot forward and push on. You know, it's going to be tough. It's going to struggle. You're going to struggle. It's going to suck. But you know what? Pain is temporary. That never quit or that quitting, that's always going to be with you. You know what? Again, it's going to suck. You're going to be feel pain, but you just got to keep pushing on. And and that's what makes you stronger mentally and physically. Well, you pushed on because you did one of the cra- craziest things of all time, Corporal. And that's not an exaggeration. You did something no American has ever done. You re-enlisted. You actually effing re-enlisted and became the first ever blind W amputee to do so. Why? And how'd you even go about doing this? Because I know you were getting pushback from people doing this. I, I learned not listen to people. You know, I had a, <laughs> I, I had a lot of people in my, you know, I had a lot of people in my corner that was pushing me. And, and thankfully, I had some amazing leaders from San Antonio to the Wounded Warrior Battalion to the Wounded Warrior Regiment that they stood behind me and they saw my paperwork and they was like, you know what? Matt, Matt can be a valuable resource for the Marine Corps and not only for the Marine Corps, but for this country and all these wounded service members. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, I had people like, oh, well, you lost your legs and your vision. Why don't you just go ahead and retire? You're going to make a lot more money. And I'm like, I didn't join the Marines to make the money because um, I would never join at all. But I had it in my mind, and this is what I wanted to do. And, you know, in 06, I believe, the Marine Corps come out of this program that if you're a Purple Heart recipient, then you have the right to reenlist. They'll find a job for you, and if you don't like the job, then you could, you know, med board out whenever. So it was there in front of me. I I faced a new challenge for the Marine Corps. But you know what? To wear that uniform for two more years – that that's what I wanted to do. I don't. I didn't. You know, to be around the wounded is what I wanted to do because I realized that the, these are my people. You know, and we all face these difficult days and these struggles and these dark, you know, dark dark moments, and we need to be there for each other. And we're the only ones that understand each other. And um, you know, and you know, going back to Iraq in 2011 on my closure trip is when I realized that. You know what? Like, I joined the Marines to serve this country. And, you know, I can't do the job that I did before. And, and, you know, I wanted to deploy, I wanted to fight, you know, and, and I was faced, you know, I, I moved down this different journey, this different path, you know, and my new mission in life is to share my story with others, to inspire and encourage others that no matter what they're facing, they can, they can overcome it. And I didn't need to wear the uniform to do that i could do that in civilian attire and as we mentioned earlier the one thing with being a marine is you're always a marine and that's a title i get to take to my grave and um you know on that trip i, I remember i had an american flag that I, I bought in hawaii and it was in our barracks room in hawaii it was in iraq with us and it showed up in my hospital room and it was such a calm day over one of saddam's palaces and they let me raise it and when i got to the top of the flagpole i, I was standing underneath it saluting it and you just hear the flag whipping in the wind, you know, and I'm, I, to me that, that was, I just closed my eyes and I realized that this chapter of being a Marine active duty is, is coming to an end. 
you know, and, you know, I had a chance to walk away from Iraq. I went over there, you know, and, and I feel like I went over there half a person. I come back a full person. And um, actually, you know, and your, your, your boy, Rob O'Neill, I think back to 2011 when I was flying over Iceland on my closure trip, got a note from the pilot that said U.S. forces have killed Osama bin Laden. And, and, you know, for me, it's like I just want to be at home with my family now. Like this is the perfect ending to a closure trip and to a career as a Marine that, you know, I'm starting a family. I'm starting school, a new chapter in my life. Your motto is no legs, no vision, no problem. It's a great hashtag. Everyone puts it up there. All these your celebrity friends. And you said a few times, Matt, that you weren't supposed to live after that uh, January 18th incident, and you got a second ch chance at life and a new mission. What exactly is that mission? And I know it's to inspire others, but personally, what exactly is that mission for you? You know, for me, it's like, you know, I mentioned the story about the lady who was going to take her life. And, you know, uh, just, to, um, you know, just the, the purpose and the mission is to get out there and live life. You know, it, yes, I have no legs and I have no vision, but you know what? My mindset and my attitude is there. And that's what we all need. Like, you know, we just need to get focused. We need to, you know, if we're going to go for these goals. Don't just sit there and say you're going to do it. Go do it. You know, and if, if it means you're going to climb a mountain or if you're going to go bike across the state, do a marathon or whatever, go do it. Like, you know, we are so blessed to live in this country. And, you know, there's so much hope out there for us, you know. And, and, and for me, it's like, you know, waking up every day is a blessing of mine. You know, my kids and my family, my wife, you know, and – I just love living life and I want to try to share it with others. You know, it's like there's so many negative people in this country, in this world. It, it makes me sick sometimes, you know, some of these people. And, and a lot of these people don't understand, you know, why they even had the right to be negative, you know, to be angry. So I've tried to separate myself from those people and only put good, like minded, positive people in my life who wake up every day. And they're going to be like, you know what, what am I going to do today that's going to motivate somebody else? Like, it, it doesn't matter what it is. You know, I love reading the book by Admiral Craven. You know, the first step, make your bed. Mm -hmm. That puts you in the right direction so you can go through whatever you do. At the end of the day, you could you could get under those nice, freshly cold sheets, and you can go to bed. And that's what I always tell people. It's like, you know what, we're going to wake up every day. We're going to face whatever God throws our way. But you know what, when you put your head on that pillow, you're going to go to sleep. And you're going to wake up to a brand new day. The day is over. The past is in the past. Use the past as an experiences so you could better strengthen yourself and make sure you're a better version of yourself the next day. You know, use the past as lessons. And those lessons can help you get through today. And today's lessons can help us get through tomorrow. And it's just living life to the fullest and taking advantage of every opportunity out there. And, you know, and, and at the end of the day, like I'm a very outgoing person i love to be outdoors i love to do things and early on through my recovery i told myself and i've kept it in my head that i am going to live just a normal life like you know i might look a little different but you know what my life is going to be just as normal and i'm going to do the same things that you're going to do i might do it differently but at the end of the day it's going to get done well, you did something that not many people did. You before after graduating blind school, you also went back to University of Kentucky and you graduated Kentucky. That was incredible. You know, and, and that that was a goal of mine. And you know, I remember being in in, in North Carolina. My master sergeant, he was like, he was like Bradford. 
you know, you go to school. You know, and I always tell people, especially in the military, if they're getting out or if they don't have to, if they have a job that doesn't keep them in the field all the time, take advantage of all the educational benefits that we're given, you know, and, and, he, and, and I kept telling him, I'm like, you know, master, and I'll, I'll do that when I get out, you know, he's like, no, you're not. You're just going to tell me that to shut me up. And um, he actually set up an appointment with a disability coordinator at Coastal Carolina Community College. And so I started taking classes and then, you know, getting close to the time I was getting out of the Marines, my wife was hey you, you your dream school is university of kentucky this is your opportunity you know and and um so you know it was that mass sergeant and my wife that got me back to uk and you know walk across rough arena floor to receive my, my bachelor's degree it was truly amazing you know and and to even think back it's like even it, it baffles me sometimes to even say that i'm a graduate of university of kentucky you know and it's uh but you know it's just the sky's the limit for not only me, but for all of us, you know, and a lot of people see difficulty and they back away. You know, a lot of people see failure or struggle and they tend to stop when not knowing that opportunity and success might be that next step. And, and, and I, I just I try to take advantage of it. And, you know, right now I'm thinking back, like, cause I feel like in the next 10 years, I want to make sure a master's degree is wow. something that I pursue. Wow. You know, I'm looking, actually looking at UK right now, you know, so it's just, you know, it's just, why not? You know, find new ways to challenge myself. Were you the creepy college student when you were there? You were a little older and everybody a little more mature. Were you still going out partying? I, I, I enjoyed my barracks day. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that was the college I needed, you know. I, I'm a little more older now. I hang out with the older crowd. So, like, when I was done with school, mm-hmm. I come home and, and you know what, drink, drinking a glass of bourbon by myself at my counter is what I prefer these days. You, uh, I don't, I don't watch for the big scenes anymore, but you know, it, it is pretty funny to, to, to sit there. Like, you know, people think I'm scrolling on my phone, but I'm just listening to these 18, 19 year olds. God, it's so cold outside. I can't believe they didn't shut school down. And, Oh, did you see the snow out there? And it's like, and even one of my teachers, one of my professors is like, you know, it was snowing and they sent the email. I was like, they look at, look, if you miss class, we're not going to count it. And she looked at me. She's like, Matt, you're the, you're the one student that I thought wouldn't show up today. <laughs> like, you think I'm going to not come because of snow? Like, I'm like, but. Matt, in the beginning, you mentioned deer hunting. So you compete in Spartan races, you surf, you skydive. I don't approve again of the, of having a blind dude hunt, but you hunt, you golf. Do you make lists of things that you just want to do? Or you're like, hey, whatever the hell's coming up, I'm going to go do it. That right there. Like, you know, the mm-hmm. one thing that gets on my wife's nerves a lot, but it's, uh, I don't tell people no very often, but, um, I, again, I just try to live a normal life and, um, you know, I've gotten really good at playing golf the last few years. Uh, I mean, I hit, hit a pretty good ball. I've hit some good putts. I deer hunt, like I actually shot a 135 pound doe <laughs> last one. Um, I got some actually right in front of me. I got two pretty good sized bucks up on my wall right now. And it's uh, the Wounded Warrior Deer Hunt here in Kentucky, Woodford Warriors. Give them a shout out. But uh, they, uh, the first year, and I got onto them because I'm like, y'all didn't even ask me if I wanted to hunt. What do y'all don't think a blind guy hunts? And um, so they brought me out the next year, and I ended up shooting the biggest buck out of everybody, out of like all 15, 16 guys. And um, so the third year, they have the Matthew Bradford Biggest Buck Award. And they're like, hey, Matt, you want to say something? I'm like, hey. Good luck to whoever tries to, you know, shoot the biggest buck, but know this. 
if you don't, you lose to a blind guy. <laughs> a blind guy do, beat you. <laughs> and if you do, you lost to a blind guy. So congrats, <laughs> you know, and it's uh we mentioned uh, – I jokingly said how many cool people you get to meet. And I love uh, – I had Double J Jeff Jarrett on the show, The Wrestler. And to, br- to, yeah, to break the ice, I mentioned your name. And Toby Keith and Jocko. And I think the coolest thing, whether – who cares where you stand politically? Not you. I mean other people. 2018, the President of the United States requested you to be a guest of honor at the State of the Union. How did you get that invitation? Did, was it a phone call? Was it a letter? Take me through that because I was blown away by that. It's pretty amazing because I, um, before I start telling the story, I, I met President Trump in 2008 when I was on Celebrity Apprentice. So I'm like, I met you way before you even thought about running for presidency. <laughs> but uh, we went on a trip to Afghanistan in 2017, the Troops First Foundation. And um, and a couple of days after I got back, I got a call from Rick, who's the co-founder. And he told me, he's like, Matt, the Secretary of the VA and the President are looking for um, a, a warrior who shows exemplifies adversity and no one else I could think more than you. And he, he, he was telling me all this stuff. And like, I, honestly, I started tearing up a little bit. And um, so they put my packet through or whatever and, and it got approved. But during that time was the whole shutdown. So I, I was like, well, maybe it's not going to happen, you know? And then I get a call from the white house and, and it's funny. This lady that I got, I got the call from was uh, she's like, whatever you do, don't tell nobody because in the matter, you know, once people find out CNN's going to be knocking on your door or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and, and I had the, my phone on speaker because my friend that I was working with is a big Trump fan. So like when she says that, I like grab my phone. I'm like trying to get it off. speaker. <laughs> but, but, you know, and it was, uh, so they, they, they wanted us to keep it secret. And I think she called on like Tuesday and we had to keep it secret all the way up until you know, that next Tuesday was the State of the Union. But here we are trying to get babysitters and stuff, you know, and so we flew out Sunday and and still nobody knows except for like closest friends. And then Monday when when the news outlets released the names of the attendees, my God, my phone just blew up. Like phone, social media. I just gave my phone to my wife. I'm like, I I can't, I can't deal with all these tinging and tanging over here, but you know, it was a, it was truly an experience. Um, like I told my wife, I'm like, this is a once in a lifetime experience. I mean, there's not too many people at all get to go to these say the union addresses and, um, you know, and, and to, to be recognized like you know, for, you know, simply just living life to its fullest and, you know, waking up every day, you know, just wanting to be a better person and to get out and help others. It, it, it's truly amazing, you know, and, uh just grateful for everything that's been given you know and and for all these blessings and you know the, i think the one thing that i've i've enjoyed the most is is meeting these people is understanding that you know like what you hear on the news or what you hear from you know people who disagree with them it, they don't know who they are as a person you know and to sit down and and talk with them and and get close with them to understand who they really are and how much they care you know, people don't like the media don't know that people, are not, you know, they just they had their own opinion and they, they're running with it. You know, and people always ask, like, what did what did President Trump say to you? And like it was a very short time. But, you know, he asked more about our marriage, my wife and our marriage and our kids and our family. than he did about our military service. Wow. You know, wow. 
And, 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 you know, like after the state of the union, he was, you know, very excited, you know, they invited us back down and, you know, we shook his hand again and chatted with him and, you know, vice president Pence, who was probably one of the nicest guys I've, one of the nicest guys I've ever met really, you know, and he, uh, he was there at the state of the union and, you know, I've had a chance, you know, working through a congressional office to meet him a few more times. And, you know, three months after the state of the union, he was in vice president Pence was in, in, in Winchester or not Winchester in, in Lexington in Woodford County, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And, um, for a small business thing. And, you know, I didn't even know this, but they gave me like a shout out and I had to stand up and I'm like, and when he started telling my story, I looked at my, my friend next to him. I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> Can we just have an event, you know, because it was, you know, this was like literally like three weeks after the state of the union, you know, and it's like, come on. But, um, you know, I'm just everybody that, you know, you talk about the attitude and the humor, the laughter. It's like, I just want to make sure that when I'm around people, it's like, you know, that's that's because this is who I am, you know, and, and it puts them in a better spot. And and if they could walk away with a smile on their face from having a conversation and joking around with me, then, then that's that's my goal. Let me ask you about that real quick. When I was a like young high school kid and even early on to college, my friend went to UVA, my friend Justin, and he played football for them and I was the party guy. So Matt, I would go down there and just party and just try to do out of control things and I'm not even comparing it to you, but it was always stressful always to having to be on. Like you always had to be, oh, what what crazy thing is Mike going to do this weekend? Do you ever feel stressful that you always have to be on, always in a good mood? You don't want to be like, oh, there's that salty veteran who lost his legs. Does that ever go through your head? You know, and, and you're probably going to be the first one I, I mentioned this to, but, you know, through this pandemic and through everything happening and shutting down, like, like this is when I realized, like, okay, what is my true purpose? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and with Troops First Foundation, we do Operation Warrior Call, which is to make a call, take a call, and to have those honest conversations. And for me, who goes out and, and, and spreads the message so much, like, I went against that. Like, I, I didn't know how to open up to other people because – people look at me as that optimistic positive guy that has a smile on his face and like like how am i going to sit there and say oh i'm struggling now or i'm having those difficult days like this pandemic has hurt me a lot because now i'm questioning like okay what's next like i've always had this plan like when i finish something i'm moving on something else and i don't now so i started seeing counselors and therapists and they've helped out a lot you know and it's uh so you know like you know, we all struggle. It doesn't matter how strong you are. If you think you're Superman, like Superman struggles as well. You know, and, and one of the stories I heard from uh, Leroy Petrie, Medal of Honor recipient who does Troops First Foundation with me. And, you know, he's talking about, uh, you know, a service member in his full combat load, flag jacket, Kevlar, all this stuff. And he's walking by and he sees his friend drowning, wearing the same thing. Now, if he jumps in and tries to save his friend with that full combat load on, He's going to drown himself. But when you're when you're struggling to save your friend, you got to learn to take one layer off at a time. Oof. You know, you, you can't walk around with all these heavy burdens. You can't believe you're the strong Superman person. Like you got to understand that man, when you're struggling, you need to reach out to you need to find somebody. That, you know, and and I was I, I admit it. Like I always thought people who reached out who went to counselors were weak and cowards. And but you know what? For for however long it is like i um i've opened up to her and and it's just it's just that one hour or one and a half hours of going in there just venting you know and you don't even know what you're going to talk about but you know you lead to other things and and you vent about it and 
you know, I'll walk out of there a better person. And, and, you know, it's, it's just, this pandemic has, you know, made me question a lot of things, you know, and, and, you know, when I mentioned earlier about removing the negativity and keeping those positive people in my life, it's like, I've learned to reach out to some of those guys and I've learned to hear the voices of people who have an optimistic outlook on life and a hopeful outlook. And, you know, if it takes me going to the gym and working out for an hour, put my mind in a better place. Like that has helped me out so much. You speak to so many veterans. It's it's what you do every day. As a civilian like myself, how can we help one? And two, what's the biggest hurdle veterans are facing now on a daily basis? You know, the, unfortunately, you know, the numbers are very saddening with this pandemic and stuff. But, you know, the numbers they don't mention is this, the veteran suicide and, and how many veterans it's taken daily. Um, I just saw on Facebook one of my veteran friends who took his life last year. Today's his birthday. And, you know, we've lost so many veterans throughout this year that, you know, if you know a veteran or if, if you sense the veteran is struggling, you know, get on the phone with them, stay on the phone with them, find the, the resources, you know. And with Troops First Foundation, a warrior call, we Vets for Warriors is a, a resource that we give out a lot. You know, there's these hotlines, you know, that's what these counselors and therapists are there to do. And, um, you know, and, and it's not just for veterans, you know, law enforcement. They're dealing with a lot right now, a lot of stress and, you know, a lot of un, you know, un- unnecessary actions towards towards you all in the blue. You know, i got a lot of friends who are police officers. And um, but, you know, just be there for each other. You know, if you're struggling, make a phone call, you know, understand that, that, that we all care. I think I was reading somewhere at the DOD or the Department of VA released it that, you know, one suicide, one person who commits suicide, it, it affects about 135 people in their life Oof. you know and it's like just think back to all the people think go through your phone list and how many friends you have in your contact list and i mean you know it's uh but you know it's just there's organizations out there to help out you know i work with troops first foundation we go around and do warrior call we raise awareness on military suicide and veteran suicide and and how we can better you know fix it you know and, and I always tell people and you know, we have our support system, our circle, you know, and, you know, we can't wake up tomorrow and the number magically be zero. But if we work on within our support system, within our friends, our contact list and our phones, then we can slowly, you know, dwindle down that number of suicide. You know, it's like we got to learn to control what we could control. And um, and I think that's the most important thing. It's just just understand that there's there are people that care for you and that there are people no matter how strong you think you are. We all struggle and we all have those difficult days. Just just reach out. I've had you on the podcast for 80 minutes. Are you ready to finish up with some quick hit questions? All right, let's go. Coolest piece of memorabilia that you own? Oh, gosh. Um, it, it, it's interesting because like I've received so much and, you know, everything that I've received has just been awesome, you know, and I got behind me. I got the letter that President Bush wrote me after i re-enlisted and you know back in september i spoke to six marines and um i got presented the french forger which only fifth and sixth marines wears it but now i can wear it on my uniform so you know probably one of those i you know got a couple couple presidential coins (laughs) and it's how about this best show best movie about the military to me i still um Black Hawk Down is mm-hmm. probably my ultimate favorite. 
while you in Iraq, what one Kentucky food you miss the most? Gosh, it, interesting because like um, you know when I was in Iraq, they actually I had a friend that worked for L Eight and they sent me L Eights, which is the big drink here. But uh, I, I don't know. Like I think now, I think my like food enjoyment has the horizon has it's, it's extended so mm-hmm. much now. I mean, then I was all about McDonald's and Arby's and all this stuff. So, <laughs> Papa John's. <laughs> no, no. Hey, what's that? There's two places I love going to down there. What's that burger place that everyone goes to? Like the really greasy burgers. They're really good. It's Tally Ho, the burger place. Oh, oh, heck yeah! Tally, and they're cheese fries. Oh, oh. my god. Joel, Joellen's. Yes, yes, it? yes, yes, yes. Hot chicken. Yeah, yeah. You know, here, like, uh, I'm a big fan. Like, we got. I love barbecue. Like it. I don't, you know, if your last meal consists of anything, like I think barbecue would be my last meal because I could just go to town on anything from wings to ribs to brisket to pulled pork. <laughs> yeah, you guys have a solid barbecue down there. When I was down there, uh, Cameron takes me to some barbecue places. How about this? Best book about the military? I love to read. Um, gosh, you know, the We Were One, Shoulder to Shoulder with the Marines that took Fallujah is a really good one. Brothers Forever. The, the bond between a Navy SEAL and a, a Marine is a really good one as well. Actually, I just uh, finished uh, the book about Jason Dunham, The Gift of Valor. Mm-hmm. It's a good good read. I finished it in like two days. <laughs> but, uh, that, that's the one thing through this pandemic I've just read. Oh, me too. I'm reading nonstop, brother. I got one for you. Yeah. I just finished – well, I got one more chapter. Let's probably finish it after I got the podcast. But um, First SEALs talks about OSS and like basically this is pre CIA pre Navy SEALs special forces army special forces and you know the work that they did in Italy the Mediterranean um it's pretty impressive how about this one and these guys are just these guys are like just dentists and Wall Street guys (laughs) military. you and I are at a bar in Lexington we're hanging out who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them they would text you right back you want to impress everyone in the bar Who's the coolest dude? I don't know. I mean, Mark Stoops, I guess. Jeff Jarrett. Um, you know, it's like it's funny because it's like I don't really have any like big time people on my phone. I thought like, Toby Keith but, was your boy. You don't have his phone number? No, I got I got everybody that works with Toby Keith's phone number. Um, that get to him. It's funny because I was on a bus with Toby one day, and he's like, "Hey, hey." I'm gonna go by and get my phone real quick. What's your number, Matt? And <laughs> I give him my number, and he's like, "Oh, I just called you." And and I'm like, oh, this is pretty freaking awesome. And I, and I woke up the next day. I'm like, oh, my God. I look at my recent calls. This is Toby Keith. It was uh, unknown. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what's one show that you found yourself binge watching during the quarantine? We were all bored. There wasn't any sports. What was Corporal Bradford watching that he never thought he'd be watching? Oh, um, let's see. We started out watching All American on Netflix. Okay. Yellowstone has been a huge favorite. I, I love I love Last Man Standing, but I think the one show that my wife has got me hooked on, and it's so funny. And and, and this season, there's somebody from Dinwiddie, Virginia, and it's 90 Day Fiance. Brother, Matt, you're my brother. I actually love you. When we uh, <laughs> when we hang out, I'm addicted to that show. My wife, Matt, I gotta tell you, it, I'm embarrassed telling you this. You know, sports is over. You know, there's no sports on. And she's like, hey, can we watch a show, 90 Day Fiance, because the girl's from the Philippines and my wife's Filipina. I said, yeah, of course. I'm like, this show's going to be garbage. I'm so addicted to that show. 
Yo, I love that show. Matt, when I get down to Kentucky in two or three weeks, we're going to hang out and binge watch it. I love it. We'll do. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the stupidity of some of these people, it's like, <laughs> bring me. And, and and like I was mentioning, like the, there's a kid from Dinwiddie, yes, Virginia. Yes. He's 27 years old. I'm trying to figure out, I'm like, God, who do I know that age that went to school with this kid? Because he is like, literally his mom and dad drove him to the airport. Is this the, girl, the, the Russian back- girl? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, the Russian girl. He lives on the farm, and the mom's making him have separate rooms, right? Yeah, and, and he's in the back seat playing Nintendo Switch, and she's, like, setting up all these, like, appointments for birth control. And- <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was going to come down to Kentucky in two or three weeks. It might have to be next week because we have to watch this. Matt, just do me a favor, brother. This was a blast. Give the plug where everyone can go to your website, buy your merchandise, see everything you're doing, Instagram, Twitter. Give all the plugs, brother. I will. I will, and I, I will – um. Once you shoot the just shoot the link to me and stuff like that, I'll post it on my Facebook page. No likes, no vision. And uh, yeah, I look forward to catching up with you. So you're really coming down next week or in a few weeks? Yeah, in a few weeks I'm gonna try to come down. I spoke to Cameron; he's the worst. But I'm gonna come down there and see him, see yeah. Dick Gabriel Curtis. You and I have to finally link up. Um, yeah, t- yeah, definitely. January 18th is my 14 uh, year live day. So if you make it down around that time, we're gonna go. We'll have a, a glass of bourbon together. You know, it's funny. I actually don't drink bourbon. I had my first glass of bourbon last time I was down there, and it actually uh, it burned me a little bit. So you might have to find me some uh, amateur bourbon that's not going to burn me. My goodness. My goodness. Matt, you, wait. Bring, you, bring, you bring the New York-style pizza, and I'll, um, I'll, I'll find you a drink. I promise you that. And just give the plug where everyone can follow you on Twitter and everything. All right. Well, dude, thank you so much. Matt, this was a blast, my man. I love you. I can't wait to see you, and uh, thank you for everything you do for everybody. Hey, thank you for what you do as well. Love you too, brother. See you later, Matt. This was a blast. All right. Bye-bye.